It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. You were not snowed in. We were, uh, but we were able to persevere. I'm sure hopefully you were, too. If you're in the West, stay there. You don't want to be in the Northeast. Uh, Daryl Johnson joins us at the bottom of the hour. We now have a Super Bowl matchup set for Super Bowl 56. Uh, Cincinnati will go visit Los Angeles. We'll play not only the host city, but they'll play at home. But the crowd should be 50-50, theoretically. Cincinnati, first time they get to the Super Bowl since 1988. Uh, Daryl Johnson on that. Also, I'm going to take your calls and get your uh, take on everything. Believe me, I could have had a big five today, but we're also going to be watching uh, as things take place at the United Nations. A lot of things going on with the Ukraine. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now that's on the cover of Newsweek. That's just the beginning of the pushback from Joe Rogan, who said, all right, you know what? I'll try to be more balanced. Rogan responds after a weekend of hearing about woke, washed-up musicians leaving Spotify, followed by failed royals Harry and Meghan. Joe Rogan responds over the alleged misinformation as the corporation stands behind their $100 million man. But there is a disclaimer. Will this end the artist exits? Number two. More against Russia, more for Ukraine. There's bipartisan support. To sanction Russia now, they're dismembering the Ukraine by the threat of invasion. It's 2022, for God's sake. You can't get your way by threatening to invade a country. So punish Putin now. More weapons to the Ukraine now so they can defend themselves. War moves closer in the Ukraine as confrontation queues up in the U.N. Question, should we begin sanctions now or wait till we see what happens or not impose them at all? I think we side with imperfect democracy of Ukraine rather than we within the always evil Putin and communism and announce severe sanctions now, but get Ukraine more weapons immediately. Number one. I think we need to prescribe very clear goalposts for how we how we take these mitigation measures off. When do we lift the vaccine mandates? When do we stop using masks in schools? I think we need to be as aggressive in lifting these things as conditions improve as we were about putting them in place. Uh, that is a little of Dr. Scott Gottlieb. COVID-19 clamps down results in massive pushback starting and surging in docile Canada with the freedom rally that has forced Justin Trudeau to an undisclosed location. Are we finally as a country and as a hemisphere going to do the same thing? Because I think that people are fed up and I think that Democrats would, if they weren't so dug into their ridiculous positions, would agree too. Unless they're just scared to death and want to walk around as potential uh, perpetual state of pandemic. I don't. So we have a situation right now that I never thought was going to happen. And it's in Canada where they're going to make truck drivers and they are making truck drivers get vaccinated or they got to quit. And they say, excuse me. You need me. I don't need it. I'm in the cab the whole time. I have almost no human interaction. How dare you clamp down on me? So they decide to have a freedom rally Friday in the afternoon. It has morphed into a freedom country, the convoy of trucks, 
This was organized by this woman named Tam- Tamara Lynch, secretary of the relatively new Maverick Party, a right-of-center group that started to promote the separation of Canada's three western prairie provinces from the rest of the country. Leak's convoy campaign was separated from her work in the Maverick Party, Jay Hill said, the party's interim leader. But the convoy had tapped into the sentiment in the country is they want to get on with their lives. They want to go back to school. They want to go back to work. They want to go back to living a complete life, back to the gyms. And if you think we're clamped down here, Canada is out of control. Here's a little of what's going on on the ground. And the reason why I play this, because there's a lot of Americans there, and there's a lot of Americans right here who are just as fed up. Cut nine. We're fighting for freedom for all Canadians, but Canada-wide. We want to end every single mandate for every single Canadian. For a while there, we weren't able to even leave the the uh, province. Can't get on a plane, train, or anything like that to even go across Canada. We need a lot of help. There's some there's some aggravation out there, so we're planning on staying for about a week. Uh, we'll see what happens after that. Yes, our leadership should be here. They should be talking to us directly, and we should be solving this issue and opening things up, and yet they're not here. But that's okay. The people are taking the reins, and they're leading right now. They're standing up, and here we are. And I hope it continues. I don't know how you can long do it because you're sitting there in a convoy. There are no facilities. This is the most well-run protest, but it's a real protest. And Justin Trudeau, the coward, decides to triple down and now wants to inflict, uh, I guess, vaccine mandates from province to province. I don't know exactly how it works. Senior Parliament reporter says interprovincial vaccine mandates for truckers, transport ministers. Uh, there is working being there is work. There is working being done to get us there. So Justin Trudeau called him a fringe group. Good luck. You can't even stay in your capital because of that fringe group. These people, and if you if you want to see it on display, the hypocrisy of it all, the uh, in Los Angeles, you have to have an N95 mask. You have to be double vaccinated and boosted, all this stuff, just to get into the stadium. Do you know they were sending pictures out of the governors, the, the mayor of London, uh, San Francisco, the, the London Breed, the mayor— of uh, Los Angeles, the Governor Newsom, Magic Johnson, all in the in these elite luxury boxes without masks. To me, that's the whole story. You take pedestrians stuck in the audience, wearing masks, having security guards, ushers, making a, a small bit of money to harass people, to keep it above their nose, while the elites, in every sense of the word, the mayors, the governors, the rich people— do whatever the hell they want. How much longer are you guys going to take this? I mean, how much longer? Chris Anunu, who is, his words were taken out of context and used against Republicans, the governor of New Hampshire, said, listen, I'm pro-vaccine. I encourage people to get vaccine, but people got to make their own decisions. Cut eight. I believe in the local, the local control. Uh, that's, that's where we really want it to be. Because when do we, to your point, are we out of this? Are we not out of this? When do you lift regulations, whatever, from a state level, I'm trying to put in things that are sustainable for the long term, Mm -hmm. right? Almost pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, we may, are we out of this for good? Who knows? Maybe it Mm -hmm. goes away in the summer. Maybe it comes back next fall. We don't want to be turning our emergency orders, our mandates, and our our regulations off on and off like a light switch. So we want to create sustainability, and that builds a lot more public trust and confidence in the system. Exactly. You know, so you know what? I'm not happy with my city. I'm not happy with my uh, my county. And then you could sound off and, and you could uh, zero in. For example, my town wants nothing to do with the masks. The rest of upstate New York wants nothing to do with the masks. New York City, evidently, they want to do with the masks. So they are suing back, and they're trying to uh, make their own decisions. And I think in the middle of February, the word goes out, my whole town, no one's wearing masks unless they want to. Get that? Unless they want to. 
People need to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we're there. Omicron is falling. There's a risk. You know if you're at risk. You know if you're not at risk. The numbers are falling off a cliff. There's another variant, easily uh, easily uh, dealable. Plus, if you've had Omicron, which is so, so easily spread, you have immunity. Dr. Scott Gottlieb. On what needs to be done now, cut one. I think we need to prescribe very clear goalposts for how we how we take these mitigation measures off. When do we lift the vaccine mandates? When do we stop using masks in schools? As conditions improve, we should be willing to relax some of these provisions that have created a lot of acrimony, particularly the masks in schools and the provisions in schools where we want our kids to try to get back to some kind of semblance of normalcy. So I think we need to be as aggressive in lifting these things as conditions improve as we were about putting them in place. And that's going to help us also preserve the authority among public health officials to re-implement some measures in the future if, in fact, this does return next winter. Get it off. Enough. Masks don't work. We're not putting a third grader in N95 mask. Not going to happen. We're done. So Joe Rogan comes out and allows the spotlight to go on people who don't necessarily agree with the CDC, who are very acclaimed, but don't want any part of uh, mandates on the booster, mandates on the vaccine. They acknowledge that Omicron is indifferent to our vaccine. They say if you have that, you are vaccinated, you get it, your symptoms will be less. That's fine. Your symptoms will be less. That's a lot different than you told us in July. Said if we got it, it's almost impossible for us to get it again. And then if you did get it through Omicron, is it the, you're not going to have bad symptoms. Well, some people did. A lot of people got it. They say that everybody in the hospital is vaccinated. I doubt those numbers. But meanwhile, we find out the masks aren't effective. So that is some of the things that are brought up on Joe Rogan's podcast. It goes on for three hours. Sometimes he talks to a comedian. Sometimes he talks to uh, an astrologist. And sometimes he talks to a doctor, uh, like a doctor, Malone, who has six patents when it comes to mRNA vaccines. And says he has a counter conclusion, an hypothesis about how to handle this and what's really going on. Suddenly that upsets Neil Young, the ridiculous uh, singer-songwriter who thrived in the 60s. And I guess Joni Mitchell and Niels Lofgren. And they say, Spotify, if you're going to leave Joe Rogan on, then take us off. So now Spotify gets called out. And Spotify goes, you know what? I'm leaving Joe Rogan on. But I'll put a little disclaimer where you can understand where to go for other information if you don't like what Joe Rogan's interview, not monologue, interview reveals. So Joe Rogan seeing all this hoopla around him, sees his Spotify sticking up for him, and sees a little of what his message was. And it is so true, and I give him so much credit for being so calm. Cut 21. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. Eight months ago, if you said, if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID you would be removed from social media. Now, that's accepted as fact. If you said, I don't think cloth masks work, you would be banned from social media. Now, that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now, that's on the cover of Newsweek. That's just an example. So what is wrong with hearing... Other sides of the story. You just want to listen to the government, the CDC, which has been wrong all those times. You just want to listen to Anthony Fauci, the ridiculous doctor at 81 years old, that if people just would open up their eyes and uh, and start reading a little bit, knows he's just making all this stuff up. 
and he plays a role in the whole genesis of this virus and the misperceptions about it coming from nature. Do you know that he's one of the few people still think this is a natural occurrence? Listen to what he said on Dr. Radio. Cut to. We always have to keep an open mind on this, Mark, as always. But if you talk to the real card-carrying molecular virologists and molecular viral phylogenesists, they feel that the evidence and the circumstances weigh very, very strongly that this is a natural occurrence in the sense of jumping from an animal species, a bat, maybe to an intermediate host, to a human. Really? Talk to any card-carrying astrobiologist? Fantastic. They're always carrying cards. So on Special Report, they touched on this. I'm not going to play all of it, but here's one of the cuts to tell you how insincere Anthony Fauci is. Cut three. But how did such a deadly virus emerge so swiftly, so suddenly, from a central Chinese province? New internal communications from the National Institutes of Health obtained by Fox News show in the earliest days of the crisis, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the agency's Infectious Diseases Institute, is warned COVID may have leaked from a Chinese government-run lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. January 27th. Fauci is told the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has been indirectly funding the Wuhan lab through EcoHealth Alliance, a U.S.-based scientific nonprofit that had been working with novel coronaviruses. January 31st, Dr. Christian Anderson, a noted virologist at the Scripps lab, privately tells Fauci that after discussions with his colleagues, some of COVID-19's features potentially look engineered. Right. But of course, everybody card carrying uh, virologist or whatever there, they all say it came from nature. Cut four. The study into experiments with the novel coronavirus funded through the NIAID may not have gone through proper biosafety review and oversight. Hours later, Fauci convenes a conference call with a dozen worldwide virologists. Notes of that hastily arranged meeting obtained by Fox News reveal suspicions of a Wuhan lab leak are suppressed over concerns that public revelations of Chinese involvement would do, quote, great potential harm to science and international harmony, quote, Further debate about such accusations would unnecessarily distract top researchers from their active duties and do unnecessary harm to science in general and science in China in particular. Yeah, and I'm mad at Joe Rogan. You think I'm mad at Joe Rogan for interviewing other people that disagree with the sincerity and accuracy of Anthony Fauci's remarks, the CDC's rules and regulations, and Joe Biden, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and if I disagree with that, you take me off? Or unless you're Joe Rogan, you are now have to deal with a disclaimer before your podcast airs, which I don't think he cares about, and he shouldn't. It should not diminish uh, his growing popularity, which they're trying to do. Scary stuff. one 408 I'll take your calls right after that on that, and we'll talk about the Ukraine and what's happening on their border. And then we'll talk to Daryl Johnson at the bottom of the hour and finish up with more calls. You'll listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad. You're here. Getting past all the rhetoric. It's Brian Kilmeade. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
a talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, I'll say in New Hampshire, we're a little different. So just to speak for my own state, we already have a lot of local control in our schools. The parents, the school boards, the teachers have a lot of say in how that's managed. So we let them have that discussion and decide, understanding that uh, maybe uh, southern New Hampshire and Manchester and a big high school might have uh, different resources and different availability and different strategies to manage than a one-room schoolhouse in rural New Hampshire, right? So you let that flexibility happen at the local level. You let the parents have that voice. And as a community, they, they figure it out. But a one-size-fits-all mandate from the state saying you must, everyone w- must wear a mask, uh, you know, I, I, that's, that's just not the way we roll in New Hampshire. And we've been very successful with that local control flexibility and allowing parents to have a voice. And- Wow, that's it. How about that? Local control. Kevin, listen on WDBO uh, in Kissimmee, Florida. Hey, Kevin. Yeah, I wanted to bring up them with about the shot. They are forcing everybody to get the COVID shot, but each year they say, oh, get a flu shot to help so you don't get the flu. But half the time you get come down with the flu Absolutely. bad. Yeah, and then sometimes they miss it. Sometimes they're like, oh, we were preparing for the wrong shot. So, Kevin, do, are you double-vaxxed? Do you have a booster? Yes. And did you get it, the virus? No. Uh, so far, I haven't. I live with my uh, parents that they got a lot of health issues, so that's where we made sure uh, to take care of that, so just in case. Good job. Thanks. Uh, appreciate it. Debbie, listen, WNIS in uh, beautiful Virginia Beach. Hey, Debbie. Hi. How are you doing? Good. What's in your mind? I have a grandson who is 12 years old, and um, he is not vaccinated, but he has managed to catch the Omicron variant um, twice in the last 30 days because he has to wear a mask to school. Um, And that's the only place that he could have caught it from is from school. So, you know, how many times does he have to get it um, and still wear a mask to school? If you've had it twice, I'm sure that he's got a pretty good natural immunity to it. Well, I'll tell you what, Debbie, it's up to your school to acknowledge it because, as you saw, Johns Hopkins did a study on natural immunity two and a half years in, and it's as good if not better than the vaccine. Uh, And they have durability. So go ahead, uh, read the Wall Street Journal column from Marty McCary from last Friday and bring that to your school. Hopefully they'll be sober enough to take it in. Super Bowl 56 next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Garoppolo under pressure. Donald got there in the air. Intercepted by the Rams. And they may ride to the Super Bowl on that. One more snap and the Rams are going to Super Bowl 56. And there it is. The Rams will be hosting the Super Bowl at the neutral site, which is not so neutral for the second year in a row. Tampa last year picked years ahead of time, gets to the Super Bowl, but not many fans there because of COVID. 
And now the Rams will be home with a sold-out stadium, but they'll all be wearing masks except for Magic Johnson, the governor, and the mayors uh, because they don't get it, and they're, they're, they're like too above it. You can't possibly ask them to go by the rules that they give us. Let's bring in Daryl Johnson now, uh, former uh, outstanding fullback for the Dallas Cowboys, longtime broadcaster for Fox, vice president of USFL, executive vice president of football operations for the brand-new USFL, which is starting up again. Three Super Bowl championships in his trophy case. Daryl, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Good to be with you. All right, Daryl, first off, let's start in the NFC. I just want to get your take. Uh, number one, they I guess the Rams had lost six in a row to San Francisco. They traveled to Los Angeles, not far. Uh, were you surprised by this outcome, this comeback story for for the Rams in the second half? I really was. Um, for the second time in, in, in recent playoff history, uh, one of them being a, a Super Bowl, the San Francisco 49ers have a 10-point lead late third going into the fourth quarter. And, and the way that they play with the running game and controlling the line of scrimmage and just the physical component to, to their offense, that, that is, that's in the driver's seat. And, and on both occasions – uh, they have allowed the opposition to come back and win that game. Um, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo has really, really kind of struggled in the fourth quarter, you know, through his playoff career. And, and that's that's where the great quarterbacks step forward and make their legacy. So uh, a lot of people in that, that 49er fan base really feel that that's, that's the final game for Jimmy Garoppolo and you move into the Trey, the Trey Lance era next year. Do you think he's ready? I think there's still some work to do. I think one of the things that, that people have to understand is, is Kyle Shanahan's offense is very verbose. Um, it, it's, it's as wordy uh, an offense as, as I've been around, and, and that's just the system. And as you get to know it, you can shave down some of that terminology. Uh, but it's going to be a big leap for, for Trey moving into that offense. And, and I remember when Jimmy Garoppolo came from New England out to San Francisco, and a lot of the San Francisco fan base was like, when are we going to get to see this guy? When are we going to put him in? And it was really just a question of him really understanding exactly what right. that offense was and getting comfortable with the wording because uh, it's very, very different than what he did in the England. So I think it's just been a really big leap for Trey Lance to get to that understanding where he feels very, very comfortable in Kyle Shanahan's system uh, because he comes from a smaller school that probably was not as complicated offensively. Daryl Johnson with us. So, uh, so you have uh, Beckham come to this team – after just basically pushing himself out of New York and then out of Cleveland, and he catches nine passes for 113 yards, including a big 29-yard uh, reception that set up the game-tying field goal. How do you explain how's it, how he's done so well with Los Angeles and was a detriment to the Giants and, and Browns for the most part? I think a lot of it has to do with, with the culture of the different organizations. Um, you know, I think Odell's probably a better fit for the style and, and the culture that, that Sean McVay is creating, Les Snead is creating out in, uh, in L.A. Um, you know, when, when you were in New York, um, you know, that, that was going to be a, a much stricter, much firmer, a little bit of a heavy hand there. Um, you know, I think you get a little bit of that same thing with Kevin Stefanski uh, in Cleveland. Um, so, you know, you know, being that free spirit and, and just the – you know, the style of play that, that Odell brings to the field, brings to the practice, it, it's going to be a little bit different. I think there's probably a little bit of that more, um, you know, in L.A. I mean, look at the personalities that they're dealing with on that Rams team. Um, you, you've got Jalen Ramsey. You've got Odell Beckham Jr. You've got Aaron Donald, Vaughn Miller, 
um, you know, Matthew Stafford is just a, is a class act and, and really, really happy for him, you know, to have the opportunity to, to have that Super Bowl experience at the end of his career. But those are those are huge dynamic personalities. Right. And I think the really interesting thing is, you know, this this was a this was a push to the middle of the table. They were all in. You know, they, they pick up Matthew Stafford at the beginning of the year. They they'd had Jalen Ramsey. You know, they, they've got big contracts extended. They've given away draft picks. This this was literally we, we are. We are going all in to make sure that we are at the Super Bowl at our home stadium this year, and and very risky. I mean, I remember when they started acquiring all these players during the course of the season. I thought it was very risky, but it has paid off, and they've done exactly what they set out to do. Absolutely. So, uh, Daryl, I want to bring you to the other game. Bengals beat the Chiefs twenty-seven twenty-one. Uh, this is the uh, the interception of Mahomes after they win the coin toss. Well, excuse me, after uh, the Bengals lose the coin toss for overtime. Cut thirty-eight. And now they go deep down the field, and it is intercepted on the rebound by Bell. On Bell. Oh, he is clobbered, clotheslined at the 45 from 31 yards. McPherson. And Cincinnati is heading to the Super Bowl. They beat Mahomes at home. Wow, Joe Burrow. No way. Only two quarterbacks have won an FBS national title game and a Super Bowl. And that's Joe Namath and Joe Montana, and Joe Burrow's trying to be the third. 12 for 12 is McPherson in, in the postseason. Von Bell's over to, uh, interception was not easy, bounced into his hands. So uh, this has to be the biggest surprise, Cincinnati's run, or did you predict it? No, no, I, I went a little bit nostalgic. Um, you know, the, the most watched Super Bowl in Super Bowl history is actually a San Francisco Cincinnati Super Bowl. Uh, I think it's uh, the one in, in 1989. So I was just kind of having a little bit of fun with that. So I was going with that for my prediction. Um, but I, I didn't see this one coming. You know, it's for for Cincinnati to go out and knock off Kansas City at Arrowhead twice in, in a matter of five or six weeks. Uh, is such a huge accomplishment. And this has been fun for me because we actually had Cincinnati in the opening game of the season against the Minnesota Vikings. And that one went down to a final kick uh, at, at the end of the game for a field goal in overtime uh, by Evan McPherson to win that game. And if you go back through the season, how many times Evan McPherson has won games on the final play? Um, you know, that's the reason that Cincinnati won the uh, the AFC North. That's the reason they were able to get on this this really good playoff run. So, you know, maybe a little bit of criticism for drafting a kicker in the fifth round. But, gosh, he, he's been the difference this year for that team. And, it, you know, we, we kind of dug into everything that happened. You're talking about a team that was 2-14, and 4-12, and 12, and now is in the Super Bowl. Um, so that, that transformation came. Everything went to the defensive side of the ball. They spent like $100 million in contracts on, on the defensive side of the ball this year. And, and all those players have been critical uh, to their success this season. And very, very underrated safety duo. Uh, a lot of people talk about different combinations around the NFL. Jesse Bates and Von Bell have played at a high level all year. And just fitting that that's the combination that gets that interception in overtime. And I, I think one of the interesting moments, one of my favorite kind of video clips during the course of the weekend was Joe Burrow on the coin toss when they lost and Kansas City was going to get the ball first. Everybody knows, you know, what that usually means. That usually means Kansas City is going straight down the field. They're not kicking a field yep. goal. They're going to score a touchdown, and it's game over. Uh, so for those two guys to step up and make that play was huge for Cincinnati. The other big story Saturday, ESPN still holding to it. Tom Brady's retiring. He just haven't announced it yet. What's your take on this, Daryl? Number one, did you see any drop-off this year? You always talked about 45 years old. 
Do you think that this is this is real? Like, how do you? I've never seen anything quite like this. It, it came out of the blue. I I still don't believe it. Um, to your point, he's always talked about playing until he was forty five, and, and he just seems like one of those guys that when he sets a goal, he's not going to deviate from it. Now, if you were in a situation where you just weren't playing at the level that you hold yourself accountable to play at, you might say, hey, you know what? I wanted to play until I was 45, but I, I just don't have the skill set anymore, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride yeah. off into the sunset in his career. But you're talking about he, he led the NFL in passing yards and touchdowns this year. He was over 5,000 yards and 44 touchdowns. I mean, he is playing at, at, at an MVP level, so I, I'm just – I don't believe it. I really don't. And I've heard all the reasons why. Here's, here's the one big thing. Number one, what is Tom Brady going to do when he's done playing? He, he, that that competitive, competitive DNA in his body, I don't, I don't know where he finds something that's, uh, you know, pickleball is not going to do it for Tom Brady. That's just not going to work. Um, you know, the, the other thing is the only thing I can give merit to him contemplating this is really looking at what's going to happen to Tampa Bay in the offseason. What is that team going to look like? Next year, do they have the opportunity to compete for a Super Bowl? Right. Who are they going to lose? Because, you know, Jason Light, the GM, did a great job. I mean, he kept that whole team together. All 22 starters came back. Um, your specialists were all back. You had probably three to five of your key backup players back. I mean, that, that team was virtually intact from the Super Bowl team two years ago. Um, you know, where are they going to be this year coming into the season? And I think that that's probably the biggest thing that Tom will take a look at. You know, how, how competitive are we going to be? Who are we going to lose? Do we have a shot at getting back to the Super Bowl next year? But, Daryl, uh, do you think it also, this testing thing, the whole COVID-19, the nonstop testing, you're out, you're in? Uh, I don't know if he's vaccinated or not, but if you're not, it's constant testing all the time. Do you think that plays a role? I don't think so for the guys. I, I, I think that they, they just want to compete. And if, if there's standards there, if there's protocols in place um, that, that, that they have to, to abide by to be able to compete, they'll, they'll adjust to it. They'll accept that. Um, I mean, we've seen the pushback. We've seen the pushback from Aaron Rodgers, from Kirk Cousins. There's been a couple of guys, Carson Wentz. You know, we've seen pushback, but, but that's their choice. They choose to do it this way. Hey, I don't, I don't want to take the vaccine, so I'm willing to go through all the testing yeah. protocols. That's the decision you make. I think we're going to be in a much different place next year. You saw the NFL at the end of the season. I mean, that, that one stretch is, is Omicron started to really kind of hit the United States and then really kind of get into the NFL. They stopped you know, testing. <laughs> yeah. Well they, they got, well, they had the three teams they had. They had to move three games in December. And they, they saw the writing on the wall. If we keep testing everybody, if we're tracking close contact and we are testing asymptomatic guys just because they had close contact with a guy who tested positive – we're not going to make it through the end of the season. You know, we're, we're going to be losing too many players. So unless you were symptomatic, they didn't test you. So that's kind of the, the stance that everybody started to take after that. The NFL was kind of the first group that came out and said, hey, this is what we're doing. We're doing a five-day quarantine. We're not testing players unless they're symptomatic. Um, that's the only way they saw to get through the season. So, you know, I, I applaud them for that. So hopefully we're, we've got some people that are using some some intelligence as we move forward and this whole thing starts to shift again you know tom Mayer, who's one of the guys that they go to uh, on the nflpa side is, is is really really brilliant uh when you talk about somebody who's setting protocols from the from the medical right. and scientific side of things so uh and real quick do you have a sense where aaron Rodgers is going <laughs> i don't i don't um but my biggest fear is you know it, it sounds like you know there's an opportunity for him to, to get to denver you know denver is is you know yeah. one of the ones that you hear out there um, you know, that, that would be that would be really, really challenging for Fox because the AFC is, is really getting strong. 
with a bunch of young quarterbacks uh, in that conference. Um, you know, we, do we lose Brady, you know, in Tampa Bay to retirement? Does Rodgers leave Green Bay? And if he does, does he go to Denver? So now that's even strengthening the AFC even more. So we've got to have Kyler Murray step up. We've got to have Dak Prescott step up. Russell Wilson's got to get back on track. Um, you know, Matthew Stafford's got to keep playing at a high level. You've got to cross your fingers on Trey Lance. You know, the young quarterbacks in the NFC have to start stepping up and playing at the level that the Josh Allens, the Joe, Bur- Joe Burrow, the Herberts, all these young guys, you know, possibly Trevor Lawrence next year, right. all these young quarterbacks in the AFC. We've got to have the guys in the NFC step up and play at that level. Lastly, the USFL, you go right from uh, the broadcast booth. Now you're going to go as an executive with the USFL. You're going to be starting to play in April. Fox is all in on this. So the first game will be the Birmingham Stallions against the New Jersey Generals. It'll be on Fox and NBC. Yeah, simulcast for the first time since Super Bowl One. So, um, you know, Fox has been a great partner. Um, obviously, you know, the, the ability for us to go out to talk to these young guys that are trying to decide what to do and provide them an alternative route to get to their NFL dream has, has been really, really exciting. And one of the things we talk about is you're going to have eyes on you in, in the off season to build your – your, your, your repertoire and be able to put 10 games of good film out there. You're going to have people watching you on television because, because of everything that's going on with COVID, this is the largest draft class coming out of college with draftable grades on them. But there's the same amount of spots that are open on NFL rosters. So you've got, you've got virtually a double class coming out because of the extra year that was provided by COVID. And, and a lot of these guys have a draftable grade on them. We're not even talking about, you know, late seventh rounders that may slide into perf- uh, preferred free agent status. So, you know, th- there's an opportunity for us to even be aggressive in the class of 2022 and, and get some of these young players that, that maybe need a little bit more work on their game, you know, maybe to, to, to build on a trait that, that NFL scouts are looking for. If we can convince them to come to us and, and work with this great coaching staff that we've got, we've got really, really eight good head coaches. They're going to be a part of the USFL. They're going to have really good staffs. They're good teachers. We're going to be able to take these guys and, and work on their craft and give them the opportunity as an alternative route to just kind of taking that free agent contract, getting into an NFL camp, you get caught up in the numbers. You are already in the numbers because of the size of the draft pool. Now you're into the NFL numbers. Uh, are you going to get a good look? Because we all know what the preseason's become in the NFL. There's, there's not a lot of physical contact, you know, during the course of training camp. We've cut one of the, the preseason games out, so there's only three. You know, how many reps are you going to get there? Are you going to get good eyes on you? Are you gotcha. going to be able to build, you know, your repertoire? So with, with the USFL, we've got ten games, you know, two playoff games. So we really feel like we're going to provide – and opportunities for these young guys to take an alternate route to, to keep chasing that NFL dream. Wow, that's great because a lot of great players is really only one league. I mean, it's not like you can go overseas. There's really only one league. So this is uh, it's going to be great. Best of luck with it, Daryl. Finally, over the weekend, Peyton Manning was, uh, was uh, actually on SNL kind of having some fun. This guy is a, he's, he's hysterical. Listen to this. How great were those games? Yeah, I heard they were incredible. <laughs> you, you heard? Yeah, it sounds like all the teams did a great job, lots of passing, and uh, all the touchdowns were in the end zone. So you didn't watch any of the games? Well, I planned to, but I had an hour to kill before the first game, and just for fun, I put on the first episode of Emily in Paris Season (laughs) 2. And I watched the entire season straight through, oh my God, Colin, this show has everything. (laughs) Romance, adventure, sensuality, culture, a fresh take on feminism, finally. Not to mention a culinary tapestry so rich, I can only describe it as food porn. 
The guy, it's, it was the funniest aspect of the whole show. I mean, this guy is ridiculously talented. He really is. It's been amazing. I had a friend who was a teammate of his back in Indianapolis when he first came in, and he was so shy and so quiet. So to see the evolution and to see Peyton McKay, <laughs> one thing that I always remember, did you get a chance to see his Hall of Fame speech this year? Yeah. I, I thought it was, it was classic Peyton Manning, right? I, I've never seen anybody choreograph his speech with the video board behind him. I mean, it was it was absolutely fantastic, and I can't wait to see how many other guys, you know, kind of reach out to him and, hey, how did you get that done? Because I thought it was great, and I want to do the same thing. But I just don't know if you can pull it off because he is he has got, got such you. a great wit. He's so humorous. So, uh, yeah, he's he's unbelievable. Daryl Johnson, thanks for the breakdown. We'll get the preview. Best of luck with the USFL. Great talking to you, Brian. Take care. Go get him. Daryl Johnson, back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, let's just go right out to Robert. Listen to the Fox News Radio app about uh, uh, about what's happened with crime in this country. Robert, did we meet, hit a pivot point on Friday with the show of the men and women in blue? Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I'm just going to uh, go back here. I retired about eight years ago. It's getting worse. It's horrible. So let me ask you this, Mr. Kilmeade. First, I want to thank you and your colleagues and Fox for all the wrong things and bringing it out of the public. Um, but I want to, I'll say this. So a cop killer, they go on the inside. So what? They're not doing hard labor. They get a free education. They get medical benefits. Yeah, death penalty. I know what you're getting at. That used to be the case. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from New York City. Crime uh, overrun, absolutely. Uh, we are looking at the sunshine, something that's right in the middle of the eye of the storm when it comes to uh, pushing back against the criminal element that's taken over our country. Over the last two years, I think we hit a tipping point last weekend when you saw all the men and women in blue, uh, retired and active, uh, line of Fifth Avenue all the way down as far as the eye could see. If you've seen the footage, it's certainly uh, awe-inspiring. And maybe we're going to start cracking down on this thing called crime and criminals. Uh, standing by, we, Jonathan Swan, a little bit later, Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now that's on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, Rogan responds after a weekend of hearing about woke, washed up musicians leaving Spotify, followed by failed Royals, Harry and Meghan. Joe Rogan responds over the alleged misinformation as the corporation stands behind their hundred million dollar man. But there's a disclaimer for now on. Is that okay with you? Number two. More against Russia, more for Ukraine. There's bipartisan support to sanction Russia. Now they're dismembering the Ukraine by the threat of invasion. It's 2022, for God's sake. You can't get your way by threatening to invade a country. So punish Putin now. More weapons to the Ukraine now so they can defend themselves. 
Yeah, why not? Uh, war moves closer to the, to the, in the Ukrainian front as confrontation queues up on the UN today. Question, should we begin sanctions now or wait to see what happens or not impose them at all? I think we side with the imperfect democracy of the Ukraine rather than the always evil of Putin and communism and announce severe sanctions, but get Ukraine more weapons right now. Number one. I think we need to prescribe very clear goalposts for how we how we take these mitigation measures off. When do we lift the vaccine mandates? When do we stop using masks in schools? I think we need to be as aggressive in lifting these things as conditions improve as we were about putting them in place. Uh, I 100% agree. Can we get aggressive about getting back to normal? COVID-19 clamps down results in a massive pushback starting and surging in docile Canada with a freedom rally that has forced... Justin Trudeau to leave the Capitol. Are we finally, as a country, going to do the same thing? So uh, in a matter of moments, we'll be uh, joining Jonathan Swan. But in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about the Ukraine. I am for somebody who I used to thought it was automatic that people understand that you support a democracy over anything Russian aggression. And if you say to yourself, well, Russia is not really a big economy, there's certainly not a economic factor. They almost have no natural resources However, if they get the Ukraine, they start reassembling the Baltic states. Belarus is now firmly in their uh, orbit. They're able to put troops there and move entire weapon, weapon system onto the border of the Ukraine on three sides. To me, that's a huge problem. How people can't see the threat of Russia taking back the Ukraine by force and understanding it will not stop there is beyond me. So that's why many people are saying stop it from happening by doing advanced sanctions. The risk there is if they're getting sanctions already, they say to themselves, now I got to go in. Here's Lindsey Graham, cut 13. More against Russia, more for Ukraine. There's bipartisan support to sanction Russia. Now they're dismembering the Ukraine by the invasion the threat of invasion is 2022, for God's sake. You can't get your way by threatening to invade a country. So punish Putin now. More weapons to the Ukraine now so they can defend themselves. More economic aid to the Ukrainian economy so they can, they can deal with the threat of invasion. Uh, and more troops uh, to NATO. As Putin tries to dismantle NATO and divide NATO, I support President Biden's decision to send more troops in to reinforce NATO. He's trying to destroy a neighboring democracy. He hates democracy, Putin. And I will just say this to, to President Putin. If you invade the Ukraine, you will destroy the ability of future presidents to treat you and Russia as normal. And that is 100 percent true. I think if we have to take action. I think people should be on the same page here. Uh, Jonathan Swan joins us now from Axios National Political Correspondent. You also see him on HBO in their special. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. How are you? Good. Does Lindsey Graham speak for the majority of the Republican Party to be tough on Putin? No, he doesn't. I mean, look, he probably speaks for the majority of elected Republicans now. Um, so it's true that in Washington, like if you listen to people like Mitch McConnell um, and, you know, uh, Inhofe, some of these uh, senior Republican senators who serve on committees. Um, they'll say things that are largely similar, similar to Lindsey Graham. But if you look a bit deeper than that and you talk to, as I have, uh, Republicans who are running in primary races around the country and even members of the House of Representatives, it's quite different. There's a, there's a, a real split in the party. And it's not – I wouldn't call it a split between hawks and doves. It's more a split between Republicans who have to be very responsive to their primary voters 
and Republicans who feel like they have a little more distance, like in the U.S. Senate when they have six-year terms. So on the trail, you won't hear candidates, Republicans running in primaries, say, we need to stand up and confront Putin and X, Y, Z, because what they're hearing from a lot of voters on the trail is, why do we care about Ukraine? Why do we care about Ukraine's border? And one thing you'll hear a lot of from candidates like Blake Masters, who's running for the Senate in Arizona, or J.D. Vance, who's running in Ohio, or Adam Laxalt, who's running in Nevada, you'll hear from them things like, why is Biden so focused on Ukraine's territorial integrity and border and not focused on our own border here um, in the U.S.? So that's a, a really powerful new shift in the party. And, and, it, and it's playing out on the campaign trail and also a little bit in the House. Like, if, if there's a real contrast between how Mitch McConnell talks about this issue versus how um, the Republican minority leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, talks about it. McCarthy will criticise Biden as being weak, but he will not say we need to send troops to Eastern Europe to shore up NATO, we need to do X, Y, Z. He, he doesn't say that because he knows full well that that is, for some of his members, a political liability to be saying things like that. Understood. It's kind of complex in that uh, that is somewhat of a distraction, but you could do both. You could crack down on our border and also understand that keeping a democracy intact uh, in uh, on Russia's border matters. And leaving the open-door oh. policy for NATO matters. I'm a little shocked by this. Well, you, of course you could do both. Um, uh, and some are doing both, particularly incumbent Republican senators. But I'm just telling you, what's, absolutely, from one of my conversations from candidates on the campaign trail, they're not doing both. And what I think what, that is because we are seeing a Republican electorate, uh, GOP voters, who are increasingly disillusioned with foreign intervention. They basically don't want to hear about foreign policy. They're much more focused on domestic and to the extent that there's any issue that candidates feel safe talking about, it's China. So that's still a big deal. But what they're hearing from their voters is any mention of what you're just talking about, you know, shoring up NATO and things like that, uh, gives the impression that the candidate is a quote-unquote globalist. And that is a liability. Um, that I'm, just, I'm just reflecting to you. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm just telling you what I hear from people who are actually out there on the trail trying to compete in these um, primaries. So, you know, it's interesting how the Russians are characterizing that inside Russia. Uh, they're saying, I don't know what's going on in the West in America. Father and mother are being renamed parent one and parent two. They want to give children the right to change their sex in grade school. They want people to tap into uh, their glorious uh, Soviet past. And they also talked about, um, you know, they also talked about some of the woke philosophies that a lot of Republicans are critical of. And I'm looking at this. That is the way... Russia and China are looking at some of these woke, ridiculous policies that were, which I think are ridiculous. That people like Bill Maher, a more of a traditional liberal Democrat, uh, can't get their head around the allowing of the looting to take place, the smash and grabs in all these cities. So they're using some of these controversial things that happen in America against us uh, in their country. Oh, absolutely. And that's always been the playbook. It's to try to convince their population that their system of government is superior to America's and to run down America's system of government and anything negative that they can attach to it. I mean, 
way back when it used to be, you know, the civil rights protests, you know, the, the Russians would use that um, against um, the U.S. They would they would use anything, you know, the, the L.A. riots uh, in the 90s. And it's, it's, it's a long pattern that they use domestic problems, domestic disruptions as evidence that the American system is decaying, is in decline, it's a failed system, and that an authoritarian system is superior. So uh, a couple of things. Uh, domestic policy-wise, it looks like the Joe Biden feels as though he's getting a reprieve by having Justice Breyer uh, retire. Do you think that presents another problem in that 76 percent of a country in a new poll do not want him pigeonhole himself to picking a black woman? If it happens, it happens uh, that 76 percent just pick the best person. I don't know. I, I, that's interesting. I haven't seen that poll. Um, and I assume that there will be a certain proportion of Americans who who would not agree with that um, decision. I think it's certain that he will follow through with that decision. And it's hard to sometimes it's hard to gauge how these uh, court battles will play in the primaries because what actually ends up happening is it energizes both bases. And you know th- that poll you referenced is interesting. I'd like to have a look at it because that seems to suggest that there could be an effect beyond that. But um, I haven't I haven't studied that poll. Uh, Jonathan Swan with us from Axios. Jonathan, uh, the other thing, if you keep an eye on what's happening in Canada, it is what we're hearing in the U.S. They are saying, let us get back to our lives. First, it started as a freedom a freedom rally for Canadian truckers, and now it's almost everybody in Canada that can is showing up to talk about how uh, impatient they are to get back to their lives, get rid of the mask, get back to school, get back to work, uh, get back to vacations, get back to freedom. Uh, do you sense that the administration senses that the whole lockdown, wear a mask, is wearing thin? Oh, they definitely, um, they definitely are aware of that. Um, and you'll notice that they've tried to sort of. Uh, well, this is this is a long-running thing. They've they've, they've moved away from lockdown rhetoric, uh, and they haven't been as emphatic actually about. Um, about mandates in just rhetorically, I mean, recently, uh, Republic. When I talk to Republican operatives who are uh, running major races this year, they see COVID mandates as a top three issue, top three, right up there with inflation and busted supply chains. It is a, an issue that has caused huge frustration for parents. Um, And there are many people who believe, Republican operatives who believe that one of the main reasons that Glenn Youngkin was successful in Virginia was because parents were fed up with school closures and uh, some of these COVID policies in schools. And so if you project that out around the nation, Republicans see that as one of their really top tier issues um, for, for the midterms at the end of the year. Very interesting. Uh, so Kamala Harris has been a little bit more active lately, giving some interviews than going to the root cause of the problem uh, in Honduras, close quote. Um, do you get the sense inside uh, Biden world that that she's increasingly alienated or is this her last gasp to keep her? Where does she stand? I haven't had any sense that they're looking to replace her or anything like that. Um, and I don't think it's really feasible frankly, for them to do that. I mean, I I think it's widely known and we've reported and others have reported that um, many in the West Wing have looked at her and her political operation with a good deal of uh, scepticism, at times confusion. Uh, For example, when she did the um, 
had the kids round to her residence for the space video, and they turned out to be child actors. That was uh, raised quite a few eyebrows um, in the West Wing, how that could possibly have happened. Um, So, look, it's well reported that there have been serious questions in there about whether she is uh, going to be a strong general election candidate if Joe Biden were not to run again for re-election. But I don't get any sense whatsoever that they're thinking about replacing her or anything like that. So I want you to just give me a big picture question. I want to play a little of Bill Maher's monologue from Saturday uh, from this weekend. And tell me if you think this figures into the big picture and how Democrats should this be a wake-up call for them. Cut 22. When normal people read that San Francisco has basically legalized shoplifting, they think Democrats have gone nuts. They think, you know, that Ted Cruz guy seems like a real stiff. But at least he believes in the concept of shopping with money. (laughs) It's not... It's not my fault that the party of FDR and JFK is turning into the party of LOL and WTF. (laughs) Members of Congress tweeting things like cancel rent, cancel mortgage, and no more policing or incarceration, declaring that capitalism is slavery, canceling Lincoln and Dr. Seuss teaching... This is basically what a lot of people like me have been saying. Like, are you kidding? We can't even debate this issue. This isn't something where Social Security, should we bail it out, uh, uh, universal health care, Medicare? This is like idiocy. And the fact that Bill Maher's pointing it out, do you think that's significant, Jonathan Swan? Um, I think it reflects what a lot of mainstream Democrats believe um, and centrist Democrats Uh, If you talked to Senator Joe Manchin, he would echo those thoughts. Frankly, Biden would echo a lot of that. And he one of the reasons um, his team believed that he was successful, one of the reasons in the election was that he actually distanced himself from the defund the police movement and said that we don't. We actually need to put more funding into police and some of these issues. So um, it's not coming from the White House, these kinds of policies, but they are being executed and discussed around the country, and when you have the most... You know, I interviewed um, Rashida Tlaib, who's a member of the squad in the House, and, you know, I asked her the question of, um, there's a bill you supported that would empty federal prisons within 10 years, and I said, have you considered any downsides to that? Emptying federal prisons, and, you know, it was a a, a quite interesting change that followed. Um, But... (laughs) You know, gotcha. every time one of these candidates, if you talk to some of these Democratic pollsters uh, like David Shaw, who are uh, concerned about this, what what they're worried about is when you yeah. have high profile, yeah. high engagement. Jonathan, unfortunately, I got to leave. I got to leave it there. Yeah. But just some of the idiocy and you pointed it out on HBO and we played that, too. Jonathan Swan, thank you. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. All right, so i like to thank everybody that watched the show on Saturday. Hopefully a lot of you did. You were snowbound, maybe forced to. It doesn't matter. Uh, the show is called One Nation. It's on Fox News Channel. 
It'll be every Saturday night for the foreseeable future at 8 o'clock, followed by Dan Bongino, uh, followed by Lawrence Jones. Uh, so it'll be fantastic. We've got a great show uh, already taking shape for next week. And, of course, this show, we're able to use a lot of these guests and bring some of those topics back. When we return, Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, one of the foremost experts on China, Japan, and also gives us insight into the Russian conflict and how NATO has a veto over something that you would find pretty hard to swallow. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. We always have to keep an open mind on this, Mark, as always. But if you talk to the real card-carrying molecular virologists and molecular viral phylogenesis, they feel that the evidence and the circumstances weigh very, very strongly that this is a natural occurrence in the sense of jumping from an animal species, a bat, maybe to an intermediate host, to a human. Right. Uh, that is the card-carrying members of the that that community. You know, we always see the card-carrying members walking around, the few that would say it's natural. Uh, Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, joins us now. Uh, he's been all over this story. He was writing about China before the pandemic hit. Now it got even more intriguing. Uh, Josh, do you think that most card-carrying experts believe that this is a natural occurrence? Okay. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me on. You know, there is no scientific consensus about the origin of the coronavirus, right? There are plenty of scientists who think that it's a natural occurrence. There are plenty of scientists who think it came, in some way was connected to the lab. And what's ridiculous is that, you know, anytime you get one of these public health officials like Anthony Fauci or Francis Collins, they pretend that there is in, in front of a camera or a committee, they pretend there's a consensus. And that by itself is misleading and in a sense dishonest. And that makes me question as a journalist and I think should make any viewer out or listener out there question, why would they do that? What is, what is that about? Okay. And what I argue is not that we know that it came from the lab, but that we have to investigate whether it came from the lab. And why are you telling us not to investigate that it came from the lab? And what's that about, too? So, you know, if that had just been the case, if it had just been the case of these guys like Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins and Peter Daszak saying, well, we really believe, you know, that it, it didn't come from the lab. OK, fine. But now what we have learned and what we have the evidence that has piled up over the last two years makes that even more problematic for a very simple reason is that apparently they hit a lot of the documents that prove that there there was no consensus at all and apparently even their best friends in the beginning the ones who are claiming there's a consensus now thought it probably came from the lab or at least 70 30 60 40 according to the emails so how is it that they're pretending that it didn't, and why won't they give us the documents and why does all of this have to leak out two years later and why does nobody care why does why don't the democrats care why doesn't the media care these are all important questions I think. right um how many times have you been on um, your the network did, uh, asking about your take on the origins? Well, what's funny is that you know I have two jobs. I work for the Washington Post and CNN, and I talk about this all the time. And uh, I talk about I've been deba I've debated several of these scientists. What's What's crazy is that when I'm on CNN, I say I don't say we, we know it came from the lab. I say the same thing I say on Fox News or Joe Rogan or Joe Scarborough. I say, listen, don't tell me not to look into the lab and what what's up with you telling me to shut up about the lab and why was that narrative shut down for two years 
Uh, and now what we're finding out, because those same guys who were arguing against me on CNN two years ago were writing in the emails to Anthony Fauci, hey, we think maybe this came from the lab. So what they were telling me and arguing against me on CNN uh, and what they were saying in private, two, two totally different things. And that, but again, is misleading and dishonest. And again, why did they do that? So all we're saying is, hey, we don't know where the virus came from. There's two theories. Let's check them both out. And why can we only check out the one that we already checked out, which didn't pan out, by the way? We never found the pangolin or the raccoon dog or the palm civet, you know, despite tens of thousands of them losing their lives in this, for the search. They're not one of them ever was ever connected to the virus. And yet we can't go into the lab. And then you'll get, well, the Biden administration people will say, well, you know, sure, maybe it came from the lab. Right. Joe Biden doesn't. He said it last week. He's like, yeah, we need more information from the Chinese. But the truth is that most of that information that we need is in our own files, in our own government. It's being held by the NIH and by the NIAID right now. And for two years, they've refused legitimate congressional requests to hand it over. On what basis? On what basis do they have a bunch of government contracts paid for with U.S. taxpayer money that they're keeping private? Is it classified information? Okay, well, tell us that. Why is it classified? If it's not classified, why don't you give it to the congressman that have been demanding it. And I think, you know, frankly, when the House turns over, if it turns over next year, then we're going to find out a lot of these things that have been dripping out over the last two years, like emails showing that actually the people who told us that were conspiracy theorists, if we want to look into the lab, actually thought it probably came from the lab before they magically changed their minds for no reason at all. So the, some of these uh, uh, emails have come out, and it's a, a series of reports on, special report on Fox. Here's a little of it about an email that Fauci and NIA... ID, we're going back and forth about this lab. Cut three. But how did such a deadly virus emerge so swiftly, so suddenly, from a central Chinese province? New internal communications from the National Institutes of Health obtained by Fox News show in the earliest days of the crisis, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the agency's Infectious Diseases Institute, is warned COVID may have leaked from a Chinese government-run lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. January 27th, Fauci is told the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases has been indirectly funding the Wuhan lab through EcoHealth Alliance, a U.S.-based scientific nonprofit that had been working with novel coronaviruses. January 31st, Dr. Christian Anderson, a noted virologist at the Scripps lab, privately tells Fauci that after discussions with his colleagues, some of COVID-19's features potentially look engineered. So next thing you know, they have a meeting. They agree not to bring this out for the good of uh, the science, I guess. Does, what, how does that make you feel? Is this new to you? Yeah, I would have very much liked to know two years ago that the people who were calling uh, the lab accident theory a conspiracy theory in scientific papers, in Nature magazine and scientific uh, documents, uh, were saying something completely different to each other in emails. Yeah, that would have been extremely relevant, you know, because uh, what they were doing is they were covering their own butts because not to say that the research that NIH sponsored at the Wuhan Institute of Lab created the virus or even was directly related, but the fact is that we taught that lab how to manipulate back coronaviruses, not we, Peter Daszak and the EcoHealth Alliance, and then they built another part of the lab, the part that they didn't tell us about, the part with the Chinese military. And, you know, this gets super uh, uh, twisted in our politics because the the issue of the origin has become so politicized and Anthony Fauci has become such a 
politically divisive figure in our society. But the truth is that this is not a political question. It's not even a scientific question. It's a forensic question. It's a, something horrendous happened that sunk the world into three years of dystopian nightmare. And we need to figure out what it was. And we need to figure out what it was. Otherwise, how are we going to make sure it doesn't happen again? And so that's why it's really dangerous. It's not just that they were protecting their own industry of virus hunting and virus manipulation, which is what probably what they were most interested in doing. It's that the lack of, the, of having that information that they had, that they wouldn't tell us that they still won't give us two years later, has totally destroyed our ability to get to the bottom of this, which is, of course, what they want. But it happens to also be what the Chinese Communist Party wants. That's because their cover-up is centered at the lab. They're not covering up the markets. They're not covering up the mink farms. You know, they're covering up the lab. Okay, there's a reason. Okay, and you know, so they—it's not that they're working together with the Chinese. It's that they had an overlapping interest, and that in overlapping interest was to make sure that no one ever looks into these bat coronavirus labs that we're doing gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses right next to the outbreak. Josh Rogan, our guest, uh, Josh leading the charge uh, when it comes to China, also writing a lot about Russia. But when it comes to China, you people are starting to laud the fact that the Chinese had this brutal crackdown. I mean, sometimes welding doors shut with infected people. And they say, well, only 5,000 people died. You bring up the fact that does anyone believe that only 5,000 Chinese died from this virus? And number two, do you really want to mirror their techniques? Are you astounded that some are lauding the Chinese and their crackdown? Yeah, no, it, it's it's crazy because, you know, in order to praise China as having done a great job with the pandemic, you would have to believe all of their lies. And, you know, it, there's a ton of open source evidence that shows that way, way, way more people than 5,000 people have died over the last three years of related to COVID in China. Now, that's not to say that our handling was great either. All right. We messed it up. They messed it up for different reasons. But here we are three years later, Brian. OK, and think about this. Right. They've got a zero COVID policy. Okay, that means when one person gets the virus in it, the whole town, the whole building, your whole neighborhood, everyone's got to go into these, what essentially are prisons, you know what I mean? You're only there for 21 days, but they put you in a bunch of buses and put you in a bunch of makeshift prisons. And then if you think about that for the whole country, well, then they can never open up. And what that creates, according to some, is like, you know, an endless cycle of just, you know, little outbreaks that will eventually create variants that will come to get us. And of course, their vaccines don't work. And then you have the Olympics. And what are they going to do? How are they going to have open, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a zero COVID policy when you have hundreds of people, thousands of people coming in from hundreds of countries? So it's they've got a big problem. It's not like they're doing great. They've they've got big problems in China, and and you know that's 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 not something to be celebrated. That's something to be pitied. But uh, but how that affects us is that you know as long as they're uh, complete, still keeping the science closed, as, as long as they're you know, trying to pretend that they don't that that there's no COVID there when there is, uh, that makes it really hard to trust them when we all open up at, again, and that's going to have to happen sooner or later. I'm sure they'll come clean when we're when, we're, when the Olympics start. That'll be a perfect well, time to. That'll be great. Uh, Peter Schweitzer wrote a book about Joe Biden's ties, the Biden family's ties, Hunter in particular, uh, ties to China. Here's a little of uh, what he was saying yesterday. Cut 34. People want to think of this as a Hunter Biden problem or just a corruption problem. When you look at the origins of this money, we wanted to look at the deals that Hunter Biden got in China and figure out who opened the door and made those deals happen. And I have to tell you, Maria, of the five deals we know of, every single one of them 
points to an, an official in China who has links to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence, meaning the vice minister for state security, who has responsibility for foreign recruitments, the uh, former minister of state security's family himself. Uh, the list goes on and on. So this is not just a question anymore of corruption, self-dealing, self-enrichment. You have to start asking the question, China had a concerted effort to, uh, uh, let's say, uh, undermine this family. Um, and this family, uh, I would say, uh, we have to ask serious questions about whether they're compromised. So the whole Hunter Biden thing, a lot of it's, uh, it's tracked with emails. It just doesn't seem to be any uh, widespread interest in this. The links to China, the link to a Moscow mayor. Does, does it have any interest with Josh Rogan? Absolutely. If you read my book, Chaos Under Heaven, you'll see that I write extensively about how the Chinese Communist Party works to corrupt elites in our society on both sides of the aisle. And I write about the Hunter Biden uh, uh, business and I write about Neil Bush, you know, just as one example from the Republican side. And, you know, I think it's a legitimate story that's being ignored by the media that we need to cover more because it shows not that the Bidens are uniquely corrupt, but that anyone who will who is doing very shady business and what he was doing was he was he was the personal criminal lawyer for a guy who was charged with bribery for a million i mean he took the the diamond from the uh, diamond showed up on his hotel and he room took floor and he's like oh i got a diamond it's a well how about that you know what i mean like these are not things that happen in the normal course of business okay and so of course it's a legitimate story but the reason that uh, uh we don't I think we don't see more reporting on how China is corrupting all of our organizations is because it's so deep and so pervasive. I mean, just look at the Olympics, Brian. We've got NBC, Airbnb, Nike, Coca-Cola. I mean, those are some big companies who have a, a, a direct financial interest in ignoring the greatest mass atrocities uh, on our planet, what's incredibly uh, called a genocide. In the country where the Olympics is happening, what can they do? They can't talk about it because they'll get punished by the Chinese. They can't ignore it all the way because genocides are really hard to ignore, and that's how it works. They'll, the, the Chinese Communist Party will throw cash at any American person or entity that will accept it in, in exchange for shutting up about their horrendous activities. Okay, And that's a problem. We're only as strong as our weakest link, and if, they, if we don't live up to our values, then we can't preach them around the world, and then... In that case, the autocrats and the dictators and the despots and the genocidal regimes will win. I know. And you see J.P. Morgan Chase is now over there. And then you have uh, uh, Bridgewater, I guess, with Dalio making statements that we're really the same as China. Both our governments have faults and pluses and minuses. I'm kind of amazed. It's am I, I understand that people want to be successful. But at what point does patriotism come in? And I'm wondering what candidate is going to right. legitimately and sincerely tap into that and start enlightening the average American, not the Wall Streeter, not the, uh, you know, not the, the, the Hollywood. Yeah, or anybody or these major corporations. You also talk about what's happening with the Ukraine and the U.S., uh, the Ukraine, the U.S., as it went to China. And you speculated as it relates to Russia. And you speculated that that might keep us away from truly pivoting to China. Can you do both? Right. No, I mean, the, the whole myth of the U.S. government is that they can do everything all the time. And you've covered it. I've covered it. You know, what people need to know is that actually there's only like 10 people in, in the in the national security space who can actually really make big decisions. And they they're, they're you know, they've got staffs who are working on everything. But, you know, all those all the everything's focused on Ukraine now, right or wrong. You know, Putin has gotten us all 
to focus on him. That's what he wants. He wants all the attention. Xi Jinping doesn't want the attention. He wants everyone focused on Putin. Okay, and that's what I'm trying to remind everybody: not to keep your eye on the ball. Okay, yes, the the, the Ukraine situation, whatever you feel about it, is dangerous. We have to deal with it. Uh, but the long-term challenge is a Chinese Communist Party that's militarily expanding, internally repressive, economically aggressive, attempting to change the world order to suit its autocratic. Uh, model, which is adverse to ours. In other words, they mean us harm. And if you're not, if you don't realize that by three years into the pandemic, that what happens in Beijing doesn't stay in Beijing, well, then you should. Okay. And then you you take a look at Ukraine. Okay, we have to deal with that. But what we really need to be spending our time on, which is tough in Washington, especially because we have the attention span of a four-year-old. But what you have to do is sort of change the government and the funding and the resources and the attention. And yes, a little bit of the military, but mostly the economic and technology part of our international strategy, our industrial strategy, our trade strategy to confront the threat we're facing. And that's coming from China, not from yeah. Putin. I'd rather not beat ourselves with our own money. And that's what we seem to be doing. Right. Uh, Josh, thanks so much. Always great talking to you. Anytime. All right. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls. one 408 7669 Brian don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. President Biden promised to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court, but I hope it's not. I hope it's not because he wants to sniff a new type of hair. Okay, uh, that was a little thin the SNL uh, last night uh, on Saturday. Mac is listening to Daytona Beach, Florida. Hey, Mac. Hey, Brian Kilmeade. How you doing, buddy? Hey, good. What's on your mind? Uh, I was just sitting here thinking about all these things that are going on like everybody else. You know, the Joe restrictions, Rogan. the mask, the vaccines, all this. I just wanted to get your take on, like, in your heart of hearts, if you had to kind of – there's no way you could know, but what is the end game? What is the Democrat-liberal end game for this? Because I, I feel that if they were forced to write a brutally honest mission statement, we'd all be terrified. I'm not sure because there's a lot of people dealt out of the end game. I mean, like for so for a little bit, Eric Adams dealt out of the end game. Uh, Bill Maher is dealt out of the end game. You have a lot of uh, Joe Manchin obviously has no idea what the end game is. Kristen Cinema doesn't. So you have the squad who knows the end game, but they don't have the rest of the country with them. I mean, I don't get it. And now they say to themselves they have control of the media, and when they do things absolutely outrageous. They, uh, when they do something absolutely outrageous, they don't have to worry about blowback, except for Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's uncontrollable. And now they seem to be going after him. And he's going after him. And I, I just don't want to see him take a backward step. I mean, you have a lot of people who agree more with Joe Rogan than anything that's coming out of the White House. And I just hope he continues to, to ask questions. Because if they start shutting down people doing podcasts, uh, we're all doomed. Listen to Brian Kilmeade today's show. Go to briankilmeade.com. Order the president and freedom fighter. That's when America working through our problems together. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Thanks Kilmeade. so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York City, heard around the country, heard around the world. We're going to be joined by New York Post owns Michael Goodwin. He also is a, a columnist here, writes columns, and is a contributor here in Fox News. And General Jack Keane, uh, the ins and outs of war with the Ukraine and Russia and what Ukraine could do to maybe hold out and hold off uh, the Russians who are bulking up on the Belarus 
Ukrainian border. First, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now that's on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, And he goes on, and I'll play the more of it. Uh, Rogan responds after a weekend of hearing about woke, washed-up musicians leaving Spotify, followed by failed royals, Harry and Meghan. Joe Rogan responds over the alleged misinformation as the corporation stands behind the $100 million man. But there's now a disclaimer before his podcast. Will this end the artist exits? Number two. More against Russia, more for Ukraine. There's bipartisan support. To sanction Russia now, they're dismembering the Ukraine by the threat of invasion. It's 2022, for God's sake. You can't get your way by threatening to invade a country. So punish Putin now. More weapons to the Ukraine now so they can defend themselves. Yeah, there you go. Lindsey Graham weighing in. War moves closer to Ukraine and confrontation queues up in the U.N. today. Question, should we begin sanctions now or wait to see what happens or not impose them at all? I think we side with the imperfect democracy of Ukraine rather than the always evil Vladimir Putin and communism. Number one. I think we need to prescribe very clear goalposts for how we how we take these mitigation measures off. When do we lift the vaccine mandates? When do we stop using masks in schools? I think we need to be as aggressive in lifting these things as conditions improve as we were about putting them in place. I think so too, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. COVID-19 clamps down results in a massive pushback starting and surging in docile Canada with a freedom rally that has forced Justin Trudeau to an undisclosed location. Now he tweeted out there as COVID-19. Are we finally as a country going to do the same thing? Joining us now is Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, they just extended the mask mandate here for another two weeks. We see what's happening in Canada. It went from a truckers rally to now all out freedom rally in Ottawa. Justin Trudeau moved to another location do you believe that we are just getting fed up with the with our leaders in this pandemic? Uh, good morning, Brian. We, it's funny you, you you mentioned this. I was I saw another example that struck me as bizarre. So watching the L.A. Rams uh, 49ers game last night, I noticed at one point that the cheerleaders were wearing masks. Nobody else, not the players on the sideline, not the not the fans right behind it, Amazing. but only the cheerleaders. And then I saw it was also seemed to be everybody on the on the field level. So you had security, you had photographers. I mean, where this makes no sense. If if seventy thousand people in the stands are not at risk, how can the cheerleaders and the photographers and the security on the ground level? They're standing right next to players who are not wearing, I mean, none of it makes any sense. It's all a kind of theater now. And it, it has been for some time. I have to say, I've, I've always thought the mask thing was overdone, but I saw that it made a lot of people feel better. And then, you know, that's, of course, when Fauci and others were telling us, oh, the masks are essential, they're all good. And then we find out the cloth masks are useless, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's the inconsistency, I think, that has robbed this, um, this mandate of any validity, of any credibility. And I think that's, that's a perfect example of where the government just overreaches and then goes too far and the public says, 
you know, the heck with you, we're done with you. And this is a classic example. Why does why is the government insisting on having its way when the science does not really support that? I mean, th- th- this is this is why people don't trust government. It's a classic example of how the government is eroding its authority mm-hmm. over something that is at this point fairly insignificant, but that will be in that credibility, that lost credibility, will come back to bite them another time. Uh, absolutely. For example, they want to go after people that question them or give people an opportunity on their podcast to question them. The person they're going after they can't control is Joe Rogan. They're going after Spotify, starting with Neil Young, um, now a bunch of other washed-up artists who are going to pull themselves off the platform. Who knows who will join? forcing the corporation to come out. Joe Rogan made this tape, and this is what he said about labeling what he does misinformation. Number one, he's not giving a monologue. He's interviewing anybody. Michael Goodwin, you might not agree with the CDC. Should you be banned? Well, YouTube says yes. Joe Rogan says, here's his explanation, and it's pretty strong. Cut 21. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. Eight months ago, if you said, if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would be removed from social media. Now, that's accepted as fact. If you said, I don't think cloth masks work, you would be banned from social media. Now, that's openly and repeatedly stated on CNN. If you said, I think it's possible that COVID-19 came from a lab, you'd be banned from many social media platforms. Now that's on the cover of Newsweek. So why people are labeling this misinformation and knuckleheads like Neil Young deciding that it's going to kill people is beyond me. I'm just I'm befuddled by this. Well, I, I agree with you, Brian. And particularly, you have uh, the Neil Young generation, which made its living essentially and made its name. I mean, Neil Young is part of the the, the music movement that was a part of the counterculture. Uh, and and if if we had taken the same view toward Neil Young's music or or that generation uh, at another time, they would not have been. You would not know that music. It would not have been able to be played anywhere. And there was. There were attempts to shut down revolutionary music or race music and all those things. And we look back on those things with shame and with embarrassment that that America tried to silence those sorts of things. And and for the life of me, I, I agree with you. I don't understand this impulse to silence people you don't agree with. I mean, it sounds like half the American adult population has now become has the brains of a college student in the sense that they they cannot bear to hear something they don't agree with it triggers them it offends them it must be silenced i mean it's the heckler's veto and you know always brian when i was raised and taught in college and school it was that the the antidote to bad speech is more speech and it was it was always about the emphasis is on freedom that we we will drown out the bad speech with good speech that's how you persuade people you don't persuade anybody when you ban it you only drive it underground and you actually give it more power than it deserves i hear you michael do you think that after that incredible display for the funeral 
of Jason Rivera on Friday, and then we have another one on Wednesday with his partner. Do you think this is a breaking point, a tipping point, where America is going to start uh, cracking down on crime again? You know, Brian, I certainly hope so. And, you know, I'm talking particularly about the Democratic Party, uh, which across the country has become the anti-police party. Joe Biden can deny it, but he's partially responsible for it. And uh, the widow of Officer Rivera, as you mentioned, she gave the most powerful eulogy. I mean, heartbreaking to listen to, but powerful in, in her composure in calling out these laws and the Manhattan District Attorney in particular who was in the audience. Uh, as I said in my column, Brian, it, it reminded me of some of the police and fire funerals after 9-11. There was that catharsis of the funerals then for a for a shattered city and new york is now a city living in fear and the assassination of those two police officers uh and and to watch the widow and the grieving uh, it really it really says that's enough we have to stop this this madness has to end but it all depends on the democratic party and right now governor kathy hochel um cannot seem to make up her mind. She wants it both ways. She wants to to appease the left, but she also wants to portray herself as a common-sense Democrat. You can't have it both ways. You have to decide. And that's the point of this moment, I think. You know, I, I quote uh, the author and critic Midge Dechter, who says that in public matters, there comes a time when you have to join the side you're on. And, and I interpret that as meaning, you know, Brian, we all know what we think what we feel is the right thing to do, but sometimes we're afraid to speak up, we're afraid to agree, or, you know, because of this cancel culture. Well, but there's no time for that now. When it comes to crime in New York and many other cities, you have to join the side you're on. You have to take a stand. You have to speak up in support of those you know who stand between us and pure anarchy. And the shooting of a cop, uh, abhorrent, should be death penalty, but it's not. And then there's the smash and grab, which has now hit New York City like it did San Francisco and Los Angeles. Michael Rappaport, the uh, quirky comedian actor, uh, saw them just – he's watching smash and grab happening right in front of him at a Rite Aid. He went back there over the weekend and did another live Instagram account. Listen to some of it. Cut 28. Back in my Rite Aid, and there's nothing to steal because this Rite Aid – like so many other writings, it's closing down because everybody stole everything. And the workers here don't know if they're getting jobs. Congratulations, losers. So he walked back to a, a neighborhood Rite Aid, now gone. Since they couldn't secure it, they have to leave it. Do you believe this? Yeah, that's what's happening. I mean, businesses are businesses. They're not charities. They they have a bottom line, and they've got to meet it. They've got owners, backers, investors, uh, and and then why should they? Why should they just? act like turkeys willing to be plucked uh, by the next thief that comes along. I mean, these things, you know, uh, Brian, uh, the late John Lewis, a congressman, once said that uh, everybody knows that poverty causes crime. He said, but it's also true that crime causes poverty. 
And this is an example of that. Those workers losing their jobs, uh, that store, if it shuts, it'll be a vacant uh, storefront in a neighborhood, yep. which, will, which will drive away other traffic. I mean, it will be a sore, an eyesore. And so all of these things accumulate, and poverty is the result of all of this. And for the Democratic Party, for the mayors of these towns, the governors of these states, it boggles the mind what they have accepted as normal. It's not normal, and it's got to be stopped. I just hope there's a tipping point. Eric Adams has a little bit of street cred. The police commissioner has street cred uh, and a lot of momentum behind them. They keep pushing and embarrassing their own party to get rid of the no-cash bail law, empower judges to take dangerous criminals and keep them in jail until their trial date. If they could begin to do these things, uh, that would be only because the public got behind a couple of, of, of politicians who would overwhelm their left-wing legislature. That's what I'm hoping for. Michael, thanks so much. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You got it. one 408 Not just in New York, but I believe if you straighten it out in New York, others will follow. Would you, what are your thoughts on that and bottom of the hour about the war? What would it would look like if Russia does, in fact, invade? General Jack Keane breaks it down. Don't move. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Do I get things wrong? Absolutely, I get things wrong. But I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I'm not trying to promote misinformation. I'm not trying to be controversial. I've I've never tried to do anything with this podcast other than just talk to people and have interesting conversations. That's what he does. Conversations. They last three hours. Some things you agree with, some things you don't. What he become is one of the most influential people because he asks good questions. And he seems to have a foundational knowledge of just about all of it. And he speaks to his Dr. Malone, and that just blows up everything because Dr. Malone's got great credentials. He's got six mRNA patents and said, you know, I got, I got vaccinated, I got boosted, and there's no reason for anyone else to get boosted. And he believes that now Big Pharma is just cashing in and it could not stop anything with Omicron and that people aren't acknowledging that. This isn't a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And he brings that up. Then he moves on to the next thing. He's talking to a comedian, talking to an actor. And, but people are stuck on these what they call misinformation interviews, which to me is absolutely insane. And right now, Joe Rogan, for now on his podcast, will have some type of disclaimer on them. From here on in, uh, are you okay with that? Disclaimer, he doesn't seem to be bothered by it. He's like, whatever you need, go ahead and do it. Sounds like a guy that's getting $100 million regardless of, of what happens. But I think, it's, uh, I think it's different information. He's not saying robots are stealing my luggage. He's saying, listen, a couple of these doctors, one's, the most, uh, one's a cardiologist and the most published uh, in, on this issue of anyone in the country. And this doctor was a great interview, and it led to the interview with Dr. Malone. What is wrong with just getting an understanding about what's going on? But that leads to Bill Maher and others like Joe Manchin, who just can't figure out what's happening to their party. Bill Maher weighs in on why Fox seems to love love him. Cut 23. A few weeks ago, Fox News' Dana Perino, a former Bush press secretary, suggested that the Democrats— should recruit me to run for president, which is kind of special because it means that in the space of 20 years, Bush press secretaries have gone from telling me I need to watch what I say. They need to, to watch what they say, watch what they do. And this is not 
a time for remarks like that. There never is. They've gone from that to wondering if I should run for president. It'll be interesting to see if Bill Maher is recruited to run for um, the presidency. Now, some people think this means I've changed. I assure you, I have not. I am still the same unmarried, childless, pot-smoking libertine I always was. I have many flaws, but you can't accuse me of maturing. Let's get this straight. It's not me who's changed. It's the left, who is now made up of a small contingent who've gone mental and a large contingent who refused to call them out for it. But I will. That's why I'm a hero at Fox these days. And listen, I've been, pl- I've been saying this for maybe a year. When I listen to his monologues, I would skip over it. I think he's nailing it. You know, and I'm not going to play it now because it goes about two minutes. One of the things he said is, when one party comes up with things like no more rent, no more mortgages, don't pay back your student loans, go ahead and steal things up to $1,000 if you want, um, we're not going to prosecute you. You're going to be getting out of jail. Dangerous people are going to be getting out of jail. When you start doing stuff like that, then he said, it doesn't matter, Democratic Republican. I'm never, he's never going to go along with that. And if you want to cancel him, go ahead and cancel him. And when it comes to the pandemic, he sees what we see. These guys don't know what the hell they're talking about, and they never admit when they're wrong. So he's out. Barry Weiss is out. Kurt Schilling is out. I guess John Stockton is out. Who else is out? Soon more people will be out the in, and then the out will be in. Follow me? The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. To be very clear, you are asking Congress and you're asking the White House to put sanctions on Russia right now, not to wait for an invasion. Is that right? We ask both. Russia is there. Russia illegally occupied Crimea. Russia illegally occupies together with their controlled people parts of Donetsk and Lugansk territories, and they didn't change the behavior during the eight years. So, yes, we believe the basis for sanctions is there. So that is uh, the ambassador to the United States from Ukraine asking for a pre, uh, you know, pre-invasion sanctions. And let's hope there is no invasion. With me right now is General Jack Keane, chairman of the Institute of War, Fox News contributor and senior strategic analyst. General, are you in the pre-sanction Group, you want sanctions now? Yeah, I, I that and also a significant increase in uh, in armament for the Ukrainians. I mean, we are giving them small arms and and anti tank weapons that's similar to what the Trump administration did, uh, but there was no additional provocation during the Trump's four years. And now we have significant provocation here uh, with uh, 125,000 troops on the border. I felt that. We really should go down that shopping list and give the Ukrainians what they need. And certainly anti-drone and anti-air missiles, uh, those capabilities are very significant and much in need. Anti-ship missiles as well. Um, so I, I'm, I applaud them for providing what they're giving, but we could absolutely give more. And I, I thought after the first uh, provocation back in the spring that we should have increased the number of advisors rather dramatically to the Ukraine military as well. I know they would have welcomed that. You know, the Ukrainians, they don't want us to fight the war for them. I mean, they'll tell you that straight out. I, I, I've been there a couple of times. I haven't been there since COVID, to be frank. But uh, there, there's no doubt that they, they'll stand and fight. As a matter of fact, in the Russians' lessons learned, not well known, after the 2014 campaign in eastern Ukraine, they believe it was a military failure. 
because the Ukrainians held them back, and the volunteer uh, civilian battalions were part of it from taking all the territory. The Russians believe that they rely too much on their unconventional forces and not on enough conventional forces, and that's why you see a dramatic difference here surrounding Ukraine. So the Ukrainians, they will fight. Uh, There's no doubt about that. They'll fight initially here. Uh, If there's an invasion, uh, certainly they will lose that, but they will impose cost. And if Putin takes the country over, which I don't think he's going to do, but if he does... Uh, the Ukrainians will fight him for as long as it takes to regain their country. Uh, if he has Afghanistan in a rearview mirror, they're eight or nine years there, and how they walked out of that country with their tail between their legs because the casualties they had every year and the, Amer- and the Russian people uh, got fed up with it, this will be considerably worse. So I understand Russia is deploying some of the most advanced and well-equipped forces to nine different bases and airfields in Belarus. And right now, there's really almost no uh, Ukrainian force to look at that portion of their border. Belarus and that that leader that needed Russia to save his butt is now just giving his country basically over to Russia. Yeah, I mean, the fact is that Lukashenko, who you're referring to, was an independent dictator, the longest-serving dictator in Europe. And the people were getting ready to throw him out as a result of a fraudulent election, so, much like what they threw uh, Putin's stooge out of Ukraine in 2014, Yanukovych. Uh, and when he saw that, even though Lukashenko has been a thorn in Putin's side for years, what Putin immediately did is started putting troops in into Belarus under the guise of a training exercise. That began two years ago. Now he's got Lukashenko in an agreement with him that makes Belarus a part of what they refer to the Union. Uh, in my judgment, he's just a part of the Russian Russian Federation now. So he is in full compliance. And believe me, they have got troops in Belarus not looking at Ukraine. I mean, most of the troops are looking at Ukraine. They're in Belarus. But he's got a sizable force that's sitting right now on Poland's border. And and I believe we keep talking about we've got troops on alert. Let's get them off alert and let's deploy them with NATO response forces to these countries. And we're talking about reassuring our allies. Yeah. But we're, let's put the troops there. That'll give... Poland and the Baltics, which all border Belarus, some reassurances. I think this is the Europeans, once again, not being able to have consensus about the deployment of NATO's response force, which the United States is a part of. And I think if we were leading that in terms of saying, okay, let's get these forces deployed now, likely we could get the Europeans to comply. Well, it's kind of interesting because one thing about it, we don't know about Germany and France thinks they want to, since the um, Macron, I guess, is head of the EU for this uh, for this term. He's trying to show that he's in charge. But the one thing is pretty clear, the British have been the most aggressive. They're considering legislation this week that will let ministers impose a wider range of sanctions. They're given more arms. They're um, really appreciative in the Ukraine of the Brits. How would you describe them? No, absolutely. I mean, the, the Brits have been solid on this. Uh, but look at this, this is exposed despite the president's uh, praise that he's, he's talked to the European leaders. We're all in, in agreement. That's just not true. Uh, it, it, it's very obvious that the Germans are disagreeing completely with arming Ukraine. They refuse to do it themselves. They've stopped the countries that they had sold German armament to 
from providing that armament to Ukraine. And, and you know what they provided to them? Helmets. Helmets. 5,000 helmets. So I want you to hear what uh, you, I mean, it's something that you it's know. Almost, it's almost laughable. It, it is. I, there's no word yet if they're even charging them. Here's what John Radcliffe said yesterday, and this is what Germany, they actually preceded Merkel. They sold out their, their energy sector to the Russians. Cut 19. Germany's made board, poor decisions to essentially put Germany and the rest of Europe um, uh, in, essentially in a hostage position with Russia with regard to the, the flow of energy uh, into Europe. We knew that. In the Trump administration, we were aware that, for instance, Angela Merkel's predecessor as the German chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, is now the CEO of Rosneft, the largest Russian oil company. You know, the idea that Germany ought to be uh, working with us in, in stopping Russia uh, on these particular issues was something that we understood that, uh, we, you know, although Germany is an ally, that we weren't, weren't trusting them to lead on these issues. And it's why, um, you know, the things that you see Russia doing now uh, weren't taking place in the Trump administration. So Schroeder cut the deal for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, So it's, it, which, yeah. which is bad for the Ukraine. It goes right to Germany. They're the hub, and then it goes through the rest of Europe because they got and part Angela of it. made it worse is they got rid of their nuclear energy, too. Angela Merkel had a, you know, a, I think a blindside relationship with Putin, who spent most of his adult life in East Germany, and Angela Merkel grew up in East Germany. You know, Putin is fluent in German, fluent in the culture. He had quite a relationship with her. And I, she, her basic premise is the same premise that many people in dealing with China made. And her her premise is, and, and Schultz is one of the Schultz, the new chancellor who replaced her, is of the same mindset. And that is, if you have strong economic ties with Russia, even though your systems do not agree, uh, that could lead to increased stability and security. And that is just a false premise and a bad assumption that they made, and it's blowing right up in their faces, as we can see that all that has done is encouraged Russian aggression. And... As we look at China, the same thing happened in China. We reached out to China economically, thinking political reform would follow, and that blew up in all of our faces. They're more aggressive now than they've ever been. Yeah, this this is experienced politicians, extraordinarily naive, and actually committing some kind of political malpractice here in what they've done with, uh, with Russia. So, General, I'm in your camp. Uh, I thoroughly understand we cannot turn away and allow Russia to reconstitute some semblance of the Soviet Union. They become more formidable with each piece of land and country that they absorb. Uh, We know that Kazakhstan got saved by them, so now they'll owe them. And now if they get Russia, if they get um, if they get the Ukraine, they'll have access to all those ports and all that uh, and all their natural resources. And who knows what Belarus brings to the table. But there's a big push. For some people on the right to say, this is not our war, focus on China. What do you say to them? This should not be our problem. It's Europe's problem. That was President Trump over the weekend said that's Europe's problem. No, it's, it, it, it's dead wrong. I mean, most of these folks who are saying that uh, have a nice isolation vein running, running through them on this and want to, you know, America first to an extreme and not tied into the international world order that we're trying to maintain. And we've got real adversaries out there who are challenging us. And it's indisputable. China, Russia, uh, Iran are challenging us regionally and China certainly globally uh, as well. And to just wash our hands of that and say, well, the Middle East is not our problem. 
and to say that Europe now is is not our problem, uh, that takes us all the way back to the 1930s when we had people sticking their head in the sand and recognizing the growing and increasing threat from Nazi Germany. That's that's ill-conceived thinking on my, on my part. I understand the frustration, but then do you want to step up and do you want America to be a global leader to help establish stability and security in the world when we have the number one economy in the world and, and a very capable military? And, and using both of those, uh, we can add that kind of stability to the world. That, that's been the position of Democratic and Republican presidents since 1945. Uh, and, and I disagree uh, with those who say, well, we can just pull back and let the Middle East take care of their problems and let Europe take care of their problems. I told that to Mr. Trump uh, when he was president-elect and he was asking me about being secretary of defense. When he asked me about the Middle East, he said, well, just shouldn't we just leave it? I mean, we, the treasure, the expense and everything. And I said, Mr. President, if we sit outside and think those problems are going to go away, that, that they will only get worse and it will require more of a commitment for us eventually. Because the, the truth is the world economy depends on the flow of oil out of the Middle East. And if that becomes completely destabilized as a result of what Iran is going to do in the region, that that's going to come back and affect the United States. Ukraine, second largest country in Europe rich in resources, and Russia takes over a fledgling democracy, is what it is, trying to become uh, a state that looks and acts like the West but, and maintain its own culture. And we let Russia take that over, that will empower Russia. And does anybody really think that that's where they're going to stop? No. Uh, so it's, I, I disagree with those, those premises. I understand there's a weariness factor that exists in America, that this is where strong leadership steps up, educates the American people, and motivates them to what has taken place in terms of America's global leadership responsibilities. Lastly, uh, what are you seeing? Do you think this invasion happens? And if so, what does it look like? Well, it's not going to happen for a number of weeks, in my view, because of the Olympics and also that there's two diplomatic efforts going on. One, the responding to the U.S. written response to Russia's proposals, and two, the meeting that uh, France and Germany and Russia and Ukraine had last week in Paris, and there's another meeting coming up in a couple of weeks along those same lines. So I don't think it's eminent. I think that even though he's surrounding Ukraine on three fronts and can approach uh, using naval infantry along the coastline of the Black Sea in the east as well as uh, approach uh, north of the uh, of eastern U Ukraine with a land invasion. He, he has the capability to certainly take charge of the country. I think he, it's, it's unlikely for him to do that um, because it, it, first of all, doesn't fit his pattern. You know, it, that was the Soviet Union's pattern. That's not him. He doesn't want to form a Soviet Union where he is owning all the states and, and controlling those states and driving their governments. That's, that's responsibility he cannot bear, and he doesn't have the economy to support it. He wants influence and control, though. That's what he wants, and he doesn't want those countries turning to the West. But if he takes the whole country over, then he owns it. And I, the Ukrainians will fight him tooth and nail for as long as it takes to get those Russians out of there. And—, and and, uh, and, that, and that would also galvanize NATO. I mean, you can see the divisions we have in NATO right now, just with the intimidation. 
But if he takes the country over, uh, I believe that'll that'll bring consensus to NATO, and that Germany would have to follow the United States and the UK's lead here, uh, with the other countries in Europe to step up. So I, I think, well, that certainly is an option, and he has the resources to do it. I think it's more likely he'd do something in eastern Ukraine and also conduct uh, something of an air campaign to put pressure on the on the Kiev government and maybe destabilize the country somewhat with significant cyber warfare and shutting down their electric grid. They can certainly deny them energy sources and really tie up the population and try to convince them that a another alternative government would be better because uh, he would support that government and stabilize the situation. Gotcha. That, that, that kind of a- action, I think, is is, is more likely. Um, he's playing this hand because he, he is so frustrated since 2014 that it, the reason he put the troops in eastern Ukraine was different than Crimea. Crimea was annexed Crimea as a result of the humiliation of the people throwing out Yanukovych's stooge. Yep. stooge. A new government came in, an anti-Russian government. He put the troops in eastern Ukraine. He wanted to, he wanted to take all of eastern Ukraine. He did, wasn't able to do that. But he also wanted that new anti-Russian government to turn away from the West and turn towards him, or else things would get worse in Ukraine in terms of military force. And three successive anti-Russian governments, to include now Zelensky, did the opposite. They turned gotcha. towards the West. In fact, Zelensky uh, had put it, has put it on fast forward, and that has really frustrated uh, Putin. General, thanks so much for the class. I appreciate it. We have updated America. Uh, thanks to you and your knowledge. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thanks, Brian. Always good talking to you and your audience. Thank you. Uh, Chairman of the Institute of Study of War and Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst, Jack Keane. You are now updated. Your call's next. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you look at Fox on a daily basis, I mean, do you remember the four boxes that you had that we had on all the TVs, right? Which mm-hmm. is on my TV right now. So right now, just to give you a sense, so CNN, Pentagon, as many as 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened alert. Okay, true. Same on MSNBC. CNBC is doing their own thing about the market. And then on Fox is Janine Pirro talking about soft on crime consequences. I mean, what what does that even mean, right? Um, So there's an alternate universe on some uh, coverage. What's scary about it is a lot of people watch that. So there's so much wrong with that statement, but I believe it was totally sincere, which I find scary. The soft on crime policies that are destroying Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, uh, and a couple of cities in Florida that just stand out, that is real stuff to the point where Eric Adams knows that if he does not crack down on crime, they're done for the whole party, that he is now begging his Democratic legislature in the city and and the governor in the governor's legislature in Albany, New York, to allow the elimination of no-class bail, allow judges to be able to take dangerous criminals and not let them out when they wait for trial, but put them in jail. This is real. The fact that she's laughing at it on Pod Save America, which is an Obama official co-anchored podcast, is scary and shows how out of touch they are and why in the midterms they're going to get kicked in the teeth. Brian Kilmeade Show. 
The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.